Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 96. After hours with David Radford from the Grey Havens. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. We are now in our final weeks of Season 4, and today is the start of Music Week on Pints with Jack. Today, I have Andrew Lazo with me, and together we're talking to David Radford, who, together with his wife, Leisha, formed the band The Grey Havens. So in case you've been living under a rock, uh, The Grey Havens are an American Christian folk pop husband and wife duo, David and Leisha Radford from Crystal Lake, Illinois. They started their musical recording careers in 2012, and on October 8th, they'll be releasing their new album, The Blue Flower inspired by the work of C.S. Lewis, in particular, his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. They've also been featured prominently on The Rabbit Room and many other places. And David, I just have to say, I love this album. Yeah, David, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you guys so much for having me. I think this is the first time we've actually had a musician on Pints with Jack. And, and when we actually started this season, I said to my fellow co-host that I wanted to do some music-related episodes. And I think this is the perfect way to begin, discussing your upcoming album, The Blue Flower. And uh, when I heard that you were doing this, I begged to be allowed on as long as you did all the work, David. And so, <laughs> which is not very different than anything else. So um, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, as our listeners know, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I spent a few years in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, worked with Phil Keggy, who first uh, introduced me to the work of C.S. Lewis. And uh, that led to doing a, a few months stint with Over the Rhine in Cincinnati, another husband and wife duo with some C.S. Lewis background. And uh, as we've been thinking about doing some music episodes, and I've got one that we're cooking up right now, uh, it just it reminded me of how many prominent C.S. Lewis references there are in pop music. Um, U2 did a, a, a Batman soundtrack where Bono's walking around holding a copy of Screwtape. Uh, Brooke Frazier, of course, has the C.S. Lewis song. Sixpence None the Richer, Richer is, a, uh, is a bastardized Lewis quote. He doesn't quite say that, but she takes that uh, straight from, uh, from Mere Christianity. Uh, Andrew Peterson, of course, just soaks all of his, uh, his lyrics with references to the Inklings. Heath McNeese has got a whole album called The Weight of Glory, and then they did a rap a remix of that with uh, song titles for different, um, uh, different Lewis books. The Oh Hellos, of course. And uh, back in the day, Wes King, second chapter of Acts, uh, Keggy, of course, there's lots of, uh, lots of uh, Christian music with, uh, with Lewis influence. So you're standing on the shoulders of giants, David, but you managed to tower over them. I just love this work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And oh, just, uh, uh, just out of curiosity, what was that stint with Over the Rhine? So I just did some office managing with them for a few months. But when I was traveling with Phil, uh, their guitar player at the time, before it was Linford and Karen, um, just as a duo, but Rich Hordinsky, a marvelous guitar player who now goes by the artist uh-huh. name Monk. Uh, he and I became friends. I did some work with them. It was actually Linford who gave me my first Lewis first edition, Till We Have Faces. And that was the title of wow. their first album. Their second album had a song called Jaxi where they imagine what it would be like for Joy Davidman to come and visit Jack from beyond the grave. 
So um, we were nerdy when I was out on the road with them. Uh, we would raid bookshops and we'd all head for the C.S. Lewis section. So it was... Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. It was, heard about it was the rock, rock and roll, roll lifestyle. lifestyle. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So here at Pints with Jack, we have a few standard episode segments that we need to get through before we dive into the subject matter. And the first is the quote of the week, which comes from a passage which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. It comes from C.S. Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And it's found in an early part of the book where he's talking about his childhood and he mentions the title of your album. (laughs) He says, every day there were what we called the green hills, which we saw from the nursery windows. They were not very far off, but they were to children quite unattainable. They taught me longing, zenzooked, made me for good or ill, and before I was six years old, a votary of the blue flower. (laughs) That's going to need some explaining, I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. And next up, we've got the drink of the week. And once again, uh, I'm drinking Captain Picard's favorite drink, tea, Earl Grey, hot, uh, as I'm attempting to finish up my tea supply before we move to Wisconsin. Uh, Andrew, what are you drinking? Well, I feel robbed because the last couple of interviews I did with uh, Max McLean and Diana Glyer, they were early in the morning and I didn't feel like I could drink scotch, but it's uh, it's after three uh, here. No, that so, kind of attitude. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my Pints with, glass, uh, Pints with Jack um, Thistle Glass um, and I've got the standard Lagavulin 16 uh, there. So Excellent David, what choice. about you? What are you drinking? You know, if I had been better prepared... I would have I would have brewed something cool. I just had some some coffee, Ethiopia. It seems like the only the only kind I can I can drink without repercussions. But I'm just I'm drinking water right now. Okay, so so lame. I know it's, <laughs> I can't it's, believe it's I okay. That you product. made an album, but you brought water to uh, to the show. It's okay. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. Oh, cheers. So Andrew gave a very brief biographical outline at the beginning of the episode, but would you mind filling in a few more details about you, your life, and your band? I grew up in a fairly musical home. My mom was a voice instructor and guitar slash piano uh, instructor as well. And uh, my dad's a pastor, and so lots of music going on throughout the week and was just uh, brought up to uh, appreciate a lot of the kind of s- their favorite stuff to play in the house was a good amount of the storyteller, uh, songwriters, Cat Stevens, um, James Taylor, Simon and Garfunkel and company. And I kind of drank that in. I was, oh, they were heavily into the big band Frank Sinatra's stuff. And so that led me into a few different experiments with with instruments. I tried piano for a couple years at second grade. I got started and I quit in fourth grade. So that was was no good. But then I picked up trumpet. When I found out that you were a trumpet player, I thought to myself, I'm going to like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) I too played trumpet for a couple of years before they switched me ignominiously to the baritone horn. Man, that those band instructors—they're so sneaky about that because really they just need to fill out <laughs> that the sections be, uh, for instruments that nobody wants to sign up for. And and um, but yeah, I, I was in I was in a lot of the bands in middle school. Um, no singing yet, but I, I was fortunate. A lot of the extracurricular bands that were offered were a lot of fun to be a part of. You know, jazz band, symphonic band, pep band, 
um, all these different kinds of bands that offered a glimpse into new genres was definitely influential. Uh, jazz band was 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 probably my favorite. And then in choir, fast forward a little bit, I sort of got roped into a herd uh, mentality. All the guys were joining men's choir, I think largely because the the choir director had just graduated from college and she was attractive. And so all of the guys <laughs> were joining up men's choir. And really that was my first experience, not singing, but singing um, outside of church, if I'm re- recalling correctly, you know, and stuff like music class when you're in, you're in grade school and, and stuff like that. And uh, I remember being given a solo to a, a song in men's choir that I performed for for a concert. And I remember singing, practicing with my, my older brother, who's a very good singer, my mom, in our basement for that solo and thinking while we were harmonizing and singing together, like, I really like singing. <laughs> And I, it just wasn't something that I had um, had a passion for prior to prior to that. So uh, fast forward, I get involved in all of the choirs, um, some, in a similar fashion that I I did with trumpet. You know, all of the all the extracurricular stuff, the musicals, the acapella choir, the, the jazz choir, all those kinds of things, and that kind of played itself out into me wanting to continue on with music in in college and become a possibly a choir teacher. I had a good experience with with choir and our instructor. And so I went to school for that. But around the just when I was graduating high school, a friend had introduced me to to songwriting. He was the lead singer of a Dave Matthews cover band. <laughs> and he was called Triff and Billies. And actually he was actually pretty good. Um and he said, Do you want to write a song together? And that was just something I never had considered. I I just dabbled in guitar, a little bit of piano at that point and i said sure okay and we we wrote this song i forget what what the lyrics were or you know but it it uh it sparked something in me that stayed as a as a passion i i I just it was something that i continually was excited to do and so a couple years into college this had grown to a full-blown you know hobby to the point where it was it was taking over my uh the hours that I should have been spent you know doing homework and things like that mm-hmm. spent in the practice rooms writing songs just song after song I would I would I would um grab strangers from the hallway you know walking down the aisles where the practice rooms were and hey can you come listen to the song I just wrote and and uh just just developing a passion for songwriting and and eventually I just thought yeah I I I need to give this a shot at least a little while after college. I, I did finish the degree, but shortly after I, um, you know, I was free from my student teaching or whatever. I was full blown trying to, trying to do the, the solo singer songwriter thing and you know, intro my wife, Alicia, who was going to the church that my family had started going to while I was away at college. So my family's at a new church where Alicia is and the person that was mentoring me, you know, in my hometown after I got back from college recommended heavily that I start dating Alicia, you know, and, <laughs> and, and at least put myself in a position where I could, I could get to know her. So, you know, her 
her musical background is is um is, you know singing in the closet you know or in her room very kind of she's a little bit more shy grew up with musical theater love that kind of thing but no thoughts of of wanting to do music you know professionally at least and uh, we went on a few dates and it didn't really click and so we we were just going to be friends and my mom who i mentioned being a guitar and voice instructor offered her quote free lessons <laughs> that took place at our house that would kind of keep her in the picture i think that was her kind of rebellion against that that friendship decision and uh and it worked i mean she learned guitar and some voice stuff and you know five months later we're dating again but but this time you know there was a little bit of an excuse to or, or a, a a context that made sense for her to sing in a group setting because if you can kind of sing but you don't play an instrument you know there's there's no real socially great way to to and you know to showcase that you know hey guys you want to hear me sing acapella <laughs> is kind of you know, not a, not something that people often do, but if you have a guitar and there's a, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a college group at our church and there's a hangout and somebody has a guitar or, or something like that and, and sings, it's, it's a little bit more, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and so six months, in, six months into properly dating was the first time I heard her sing. And that was the first kind of, you know, light bulb moment of, Hey, what if we, what if we sang, together but really it wasn't until after we got engaged that we that we sang together and it wasn't until after we, we got married that we kind of did anything musically together which was a week after our honeymoon drive into the studio in nashville which we, where we now live and me teaching her last minute harmony parts on the way <laughs> to the studio to to kind of jump on this project that i was going to do solo but i thought just before we got married, I thought you want to be in a band together too. <laughs> you know, it's would you? Because up until that point, she was just gonna support me. Maybe she's into into art and stuff, and maybe she would draw, uh, draw the t shirt designs and you know help me out on on the road. But I was like, you maybe we should try to sing together. And so, so you basically became those band members where you yeah exactly people up. It's like, oh, could you also do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, a, that's exactly right. And so she's, she's really learned like on the job. That's great. So after, after we made our first EP, we kickstarted that with some family and friends and made a, a six, five or six song EP gave it away on something called noise trade in exchange for email addresses. And that was like in the heyday of noise trade. And so 10,000 people downloaded it. And so we had 10,000 emails and we just sent out an email and said, Hey, can we come on a, on a, on a living room tour, you know, across the, wherever you guys live and play some shows. And we got a, a good amount of responses back. And so we had made an album and we were on our first tour driving around in our Ford Taurus and no idea what we're doing. And and that's that's the start of things. And your band is called the Grey Havens. And it wasn't actually until yes. I was writing the show notes for this episode that I realized that the Grey of Grey Havens is spelt in the American fashion with an A rather than an E. So on behalf of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, I have to ask, why do you hate her English so much? <laughs> let me uh, let me take that one. It's because we kicked your butts at Yorktown. That's why. <laughs> I uh, so the story with the name is we had made this album we kickstarted it which is 
most people know what that is, but it's an online fundraising platform and it's basically like a pre-order uh, for the for the CD and, and t-shirts and stuff. And we were two weeks out from needing to start CD manufacturing, printing the physical copies to send to everybody that that ordered one. And we didn't have a band name yet. And we had we had gone through well, we did have a band name, but we we did this big, you know, announcement reveal of the band name one show at a coffee shop. The problem was that after the show, people couldn't remember it. So they came up and asked us, what was your band name again? <laughs> and then when it came time to give the response, we forgot too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we ditched that band name and we were desperate. So we reached out to our, our Kickstarter backers and said, hey, we, we're we in a tight spot. We need a band name. Here are some concepts, themes we like. Here's some song titles we have. And um, you know, we're, we're open to to anybody's suggestions. And one of the names that came back was the gray Havens. And so the, the deal with the, the spelling is we had already had a, we had a song on the album called gray flowers that we had already mastered and, and spelled with the G R A Y uh, spelling, use the American spelling. So we just um, kept it that with the, with the A Y. And uh, for consistency's sake, and that's just how I spell gray anyway. So, um, so it was all yeah. a big accident that you're just following through on, regardless. Perfect. <laughs> Is that, does Tolkien spell it with a with a? Uh, he does with an, an e. e. Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. I checked. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for this latest album. Um, well, but before we do that, um, tell me about your exposure to C.S. Lewis. Uh, where did you mm -hmm. come uh, come to that? How did Alicia come to that? And how did it, mm -hmm. you know, really t play such a big role? I grew up, as I said, my, my dad is a pastor. And so sprinkled throughout his sermons, you know, over the over the years that I was going to church were, were various C.S. Lewis quotes. And I, I, so I was kind of secondhand familiar with C.S. Lewis, but really it wasn't until college and, and after college that I started to read Lewis with any kind of, um, you know, something I could say I was familiar with. So I, it might've been the screw tape letters that I started with. And then I, I read the, the Chronicles of Narnia series pretty late, you know, around 22 years old, oh, wow. which is like <laughs> some kind of heresy for I was for, thinking uh, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, actually, so, our friend Steve Beebe came to, to be called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, I was actually very glad in a, in a way that I read it during that time in my life because I was a semi-new Christian. I think I became a, a Christian around 17, 18 years old. And college was really the, the greenhouse of, of growth that I experienced for, for living that out in community and, and a really special uh, group of people that I became friends with. And at the University of Illinois in in um, Champaign, Urbana, but I remember reading through the Chron Chronicles of Narnia, and I'm sure this has done the same thing for a lot of people. But it really kind of lit a fire, just kind of sp sparked a lot of imagination in a way that made me see Scripture and the Gospel story in a new light and, and uh, through different colors and. I don't know. It really did the thing that only story can do in, in a certain sense. And 
kind of plunges you into a different world so that, you know, when you come out again, you see reality differently and in uh, in a new way. That's a a fascinating story. It reminds me of, oh my gosh, um, probably 20 years ago uh, when I was preparing Mere Christians, a friend of mine and I in 2009 put out a book called Mere Christians where we gathered people's stories of kind of how Lewis just crashed into their lives. And one of the interviews that didn't make the book was with Ty Tabor, who's the guitarist for this uh, rock band called King's X. Um, And they've been doing stuff for years. Their first album was called Out of the Silent Planet. They've got a song called St. Anne's on the Hill, the garden at St. Anne's on the Hill, out of from from that hideous strength. And uh, Ty said that it was really Lewis that allowed him permission to kind of break out artistically and not fit into to any box and mm. and just really kind of gave the whole band permission to kind of do their own do their own thing. So it's a lot of resonance in what I'm what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your new album, The Blue Flower, which at the time of publishing will be released in about a month. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit of the the story about its origins as well as the role that Lewis played in it? The whole uh, idea for the album started around spring of 2019. We are touring our heaven-themed concept album called She Waits at the time, and we're, we're it's interesting when you're out on tour, I was just talking to my friend a couple of days ago about this. You're seeing a lot of new places. Every day is different, new venue, new, new faces, new audience. And there's something about that, at least with me, that makes me inspired to write things. And when, then when you get home and you're just in your office or your studio or whatever, it's, it's like the well's dry and you're not getting all that newness and, and, uh, inspiration, but I was struggling even on tour this time around to, to be inspired. And I was, we were pretty exhausted from touring and I was dreading going home, uh, because I knew that when I, when I did, it would be time to write for a new album. And I, I didn't particularly, feel like I had anything more to say. And I think this is fairly common with writers. You know, you get done with a record and then you're like, well, that's the last one I'm ever going to write. <laughs> you know, I'm, there's nothing else I could possibly consider, you know, saying. And I remembered when I was on tour, a, a book recommendation that I had been given years ago by a guy named Joe Rigney, who is now, I think, the, uh, the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary up in Minneapolis, and, and he had recommended a book called Planet Narnia, and you know that I should write this this uh, concept album for Planet Narnia. And so while we're on tour, I think it was on Kindle, or yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure it was on Kindle. I, I just got the book and I started reading it, and was was quickly intrigued by Michael Ward, the author. Uh, the name is Michael Ward. He makes the case, I think, pretty convincingly that. Lewis archetypes each of his seven Chronicles of Narnia stories after one of the seven medieval planets in the medieval planetary system. So that the so he archetyped the Voyage of the Dawn Treader after attributes commonly attributed to the sun in poetry and, and mythology. And, and, you know, the silver chair, chair was inspired by the moon because it's marshy and 
wet and you know full of lunatics yeah (laughs) lunatics wandering and yeah and i'm i was pretty convinced by the by the premise of the book and 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 i thought okay well well, maybe i'll i'll take this up and and see if there's anything there so I, i started sketching out different song ideas on um just in my my recording software program and and just musically messing around with with trying to i don't know embody or you know communicate these different these different themes via music and so i was doing also at the same time a lot of uh reading by lewis and trying to get a a full picture of of who he was and and what he had to say and so i, I kind of did a crash course in and a lot of reading read read all our most of his fiction, a lot of his prose uh, books, a lot of his essays. And at the end of the quote unquote research process, I just thought for due diligence, I should read Surprised by Joy, which is his own autobiography. And I started reading that was was quickly engrossed in a way that I hadn't been for, for even reading the other books. And I think it was because, you know, I had, it's like I had been friends. So I'm 33. So I've, I've been reading Lewis, you know, a little bit over 10 years. So I've, I've been kind of soft friends, acquaintances with, with somebody for over a decade. And now I just binged on mm-hmm. <laughs> that person's, that person's reading. So now we're like, like a little bit more uh, acquainted and, and it's like somebody that you just became best friends with, you know, all of a sudden, walking over, sitting down, and and, and offering to tell you his life story himself yeah. from from his own words, and I think that certainly, if you picked up the book and you read it cold without knowing Lewis, you you there are definitely universal things in that book. I think that that you know you don't need to have read Lewis to resonate with, but I think it it gripped me like it did because I had just spent a season. I think I read the the Narnia books you know five to seven times through all in a row to kind of saturate my mind with, with the imagery and things. And, and so a few chapters into his, his autobiography, surprised by joy, I landed on that sentence, that quote that you read about the blue flower, you know, in the book, the whole premise is Lewis is telling his life story through the lens of this experience he calls joy and defines as this unsatisfied desire, more desirable than any satisfaction. So this ache, this longing, uh, mixed with a, uh, it's like a painful pleasure. There, there's, it's not just longing and loss. It's there, there is a, a positive element to it as well. So that, you know, he, he, what he says in his, in his book, you know, it became the single most important object of pursuit in my life because it, it felt that much more important and uh, meaningful than than anything else and he says it's it's not an experience so much as the desire for an experience and anyway that that sentence there i was at six years old a voter of the blue flower him commenting on his first experience with joy was like a hyperlink to something that i should have known about uh, the hyperlink being the word blue flower. Like he doesn't tell you what it is and he doesn't mention it again in the book. The only other place I've seen to mention it is in the prologue of the 
book, The Pilgrim's Regress, which is sort of his life story in fiction form. And those are the only place, uh, the places that I've seen him comment on the blue flower. And it was a hyperlink to a symbol that was used in, in German literature, I think in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me. This is all just, you know, re- repeating other yeah. things. Nivalis, but right? it, uh, yeah. So it's a symbol that was already being used in literature at, for the specific emotion that Lewis is talking about. So Zenzucht isn't something that originates with Lewis, obviously. And the blue flower isn't something that originates with Lewis. But he, having experienced it, you know, and, and found it in other literatures, is just referencing it here in the first few chapters. And as I continued to, to read the book, it that blue flower image kind of stood forth, you know, as the more and more as the concrete symbol and icon of joy. And that led me to writing the title track, Blue Flower, which just made me, I don't know, it inspired me enough to to want to dedicate an album's worth of work to, you know, holding up if the, if the blue, we're switching the, the imagery, but if the, if the blue flowers is diamond or whatever, and just, just holding it up and under, under the light and, and seeing it through, through different facets. And, and um, so, so that's what the album is basically. That's fantastic. Well, and the way that you relate um, kind of, and it's, it, when we were putting together mere Christians, I found that that was the case for, with a lot of folks. They read Lewis, but then something grabs them and just mm-hmm. kind of sucks them into the vortex um, and yeah, and swirl. really kind of becomes the gravitational center. Um, it's been fun over the years to get to know Michael Ward um, a little bit personally. And then he's been on the show a couple of times this season. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd love to have a conversation with him one day. Oh, absolutely. Well, I should send him an email and just, and just say, Hey, thank you so much. I'm thinking about doing that, but I get nervous every time. No. I'm like, what if he hates the record? <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, do it. He's a, he's a generous man. Plus he's a Catholic priest. So he's obligated to be nice to you. Yeah. So. And he has to forgive you if he thinks the album is terrible. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I'm sure that if you make it over to England next summer, there's a couple of different trips, um, including Oxbridge with the C.S. Lewis Foundation. And I'm sure that he'll be there. Um, oh, nice. And so, and he comes over to the States. In fact, he's in Texas, usually in the spring, because he's a professor at HBU's um, uh, cultural apologetics program. And so oh, he nice. often does some dates around the U.S. in the spring. So please do reach out for him. Use our yeah, name to ignore I really you. Will. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, hook, I'll hook you up <laughs> yeah but let's now talk about some of the songs on your album and i honestly i just want to talk about every single song because there's so much in each of them I and do references too. that i want to point out and we're Fantastic. definitely not going to get through them all so we're just going to see how we go all right uh, but the first and most obvious one to talk about is the title track blue flower and i'm sure wants to read a couple of the lyrics I felt you blue flower in my soul. You got me longing for something more. Where are you, blue flower? Come back and stay, because I can't find anything better than this ache. Felt blue flower in my soul. You got me longing for something more. Now I 
this is so good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, lots of garden imagery in the whole album too. And um, you, I'm guessing that you may not have read Allegory of Love, which is his first kind of scholarly look, but he's looking at the Romance of the Rose and those garden images come through in some ways mm -hmm. from that medieval literature. But I loved all those garden references too. Thank you. Yeah, it um, just was a, if in my mind, a, a lyrical friend to flower, you know, the, the garden kind of okay. uh, metaphor, but also one of Lewis's, he actually spends a good amount of time on it and references it a few times. One of the earliest instances of joy that he yeah. recounts is, the toy garden, is yeah. a, a toy garden that his brother brings in from outside is just this biscuit tin filled with moss and dirt. And Lewis experiences this flash of joy and says what the real garden had failed to do, the, the toy garden did, because it was reminding him of nature, freshness, exuberance. And that did something. Nature is one of the, the main mediums, actually, through which you find in his, his autobiography that, that joy sort of sings through or, you know, travels through. And also in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, just you can tell he's a, a fan of nature, silence, solitude, birds singing, water rushing. All of those kinds of things are are really embedded in, in Lewis's, I don't know, vernacular and, and his thinking. And, and, and even one of the other early instances of joy was him reading be it one of Beatrix Potter's Squirrel Nutkin. books, Squirrel Nutkin, yeah, yeah. and him being remind him being taken by this idea of autumn, yes, and that was one of the yeah. the 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 big, you know, five instances of joy that he he talks about in in the early chapters. So I think nature and and garden imagery uh, was just a natural um, home for for. The blue flower. Mm. By the way, while we were talking, I did a quick search through every one of his letters and every one of his essays, and the phrase "blue flower" does not occur. I did the same thing, and I could have. Yeah. I was, it was maddening. I was like, <laughs> "Come on!" Well, well, he reformulates the idea again and again in lots and lots of different ways. Like when the children hear the name of Aslan for the first time. That's right. That's right. It's almost like Aslan is is the the source of joy and they and they get a feeling associated with aslan before they meet aslan mm -hmm. so just at the name of aslan they all have these different reactions numinous reactions right there's the mm -hmm. feeling of the stirring of the uh, of the divine and that's part of the argument for reading lion the witch in the wardrobe first because the narrator says yeah. that the children had no more idea who aslan was when his name was first mentioned mm -hmm. than you do so mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And interestingly, Edmund is is has a is an opposite reaction, equally as strong. Mysterious horror, right? Yeah. Well, and then it, and Susan is the sensualist, right? She's got a sensual mm -hmm. imagination, a physical imagination, but not much um, spiritual imagination. And I always kind of poo pooed it. She felt as if it was a lovely scent or a strain of music that had passed her by. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always focused on the passing her by. But Lewis, as you pointed out, is strongly moved by strains of music and sense 
you know, mm -hmm. the, the smell of the peas when they're in bloom fills his poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's inviting each of them, even Edmund in his horrors, and he should be rightly feel, filled with mystery and horror at what he's mm -hmm. done. Guilt can become a, mm -hmm. a powerful voice of wooing towards the gospel. And in defense of Susan, the whole passing by thing, one of the other ideas that Lewis comes back to again and again in his works is the fact that this joy is ephemeral. It, it, it's no sooner here, but it's, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And right. as I quoted in that first song, it, it leaves you with something of an ache. And in your next song, which is Rhythm of the East, which it, I described it to my wife as, uh, it's a song about the enthusiastic pursuit of joy towards mm -hmm. its ultimate source. And in there, you, you have a, a similar idea uh, about an ache because you say, wouldn't say that I was well, but there's a certain sickness that was better than health. Mm -hmm. It's like there's, there's this thing that sort of hurts, but you wouldn't want to be without it. Yeah, looking back, I remember that. Wouldn't say that I was well, but there's a certain sickness that's better than health. Every day was another way trying to get back to the dream of the summer song. If I get it wrong, you can find it in the Easter school. That's just quoting Lewis. Uh, he, in his autobiography, at one point referring to joy, he says, that sickness better than health. I mean, he gives up lots of names. You know, the, the arrow this, that was um, shot from the north, you know, an enormous bliss. Building the temple that the god has flown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he gives all this language because he's trying to to get at it because it, it's you know vocab words are so inadequate. I think to to really communicate what it is, and and I think he's he comes at it from so many different angles because of that. But the the kind of story behind this song, "Rhythm of the East," is Lewis just biographically he he grows up in not a super christian home i think it's it's more of a cultural um type of association with christianity i don't think he's really educated and um has any kind of relationship or, or would claim any kind of relationship with God or, or Jesus. And then he, he goes to school and he's at school. He's taught about God and Jesus and Christianity and, and is introduced to the idea that there might be a heaven and hell. And he, you know, he becomes, um, a, a quote believer and, but really struggles with connecting to God through prayer. And, and he has these nightly um, bouts of trying to come to a point of quote realizations, like like muster self mustering up an emotional state that he would pretty. I, I kind of picked up he was pretty self critical at least in that regard. So that you know he he would try to muster up a a feeling or a sentiment, maybe even to 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 match the feeling he got you know, with joy. Um, and, and he has prayers, is self-critical afterwards and, and kind of feels dejected about it all. And so he does this for, you know, two or three years. And then he kind of becomes cynical and skeptical about the whole historical Jesus thing. And, and, um, just from some, some comments 
teachers had made about other religions and dismissing them for grounds that Lewis felt were not legit and were were double double standardized. So because if, if the same reasons why they dismissed this historical account were applied to Christianity, it, it wouldn't hold water. So he became skeptical and he and he want and he was eager to shed his Christian faith because it was linked to this dreading prayer and realizations and and all of that. And then for a lot of reasons, he he becomes cynical and regards the universe as this cold and vast, unfriendly space. And and he's effectively an atheist at this point and almost abandons his pursuit of joy and its source because he's he's trying to figure out where where it comes from. But ultimately, if if the universe is is cold and meaningless and and menacing and maybe even unfriendly, then the the blue flower must be this just this fancy and you know wishful thinking type of thing. And then he recounts this this episode he has in a in a school classroom where he looks down at this magazine mm-hmm. from I just did a podcast on it. So I, I know the name of it the Times Literary Supplement had this um picture of Siegfried in the Twilight of the Gods. Rackham. Which w- yeah. was this Wagnerian, I think. Yeah, it's Arthur Rackham's um, painting. Yeah. He's a big fan of, of Norse mythology. And he said he was like at once lifted up into the you know northern spheres and 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 it's almost like joy returns and at this point in his life and and he at that point says he's off once again into the land of longing and he's he now is trying to once again actively chase down what is joy's source and the song is almost the the interaction with with joy's ephemeral nature it's here again gone again it's hard to pin down and and that's a theme of the album as well and and the whole chorus is don't let me go don't leave me behind i want you to stay reminds me a bit of of lucy you know longing to come back and oh aslan do bring us back do 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 make it soon right Mm -hmm. in the end of the voyage of the dawn treader as they go to the to the utter east Mm -hmm. and he says of course you're not coming back you know, and so that that element of having and, and lacking, it's so poignant and it comes across so well in the in the music. It's it's funny that that song reminded me actually of the book that we did this season, which was the Screwtape Letters in the scene where the patient mm. takes a walk down by the old mill and has a cup of tea. And then he's surrounded by this cloud that that blocks Screwtape's activities. Uh, I, I thought of that as I was uh, listening to to the opening lines. I was going down by the river found. I was cold and couldn't speak. Mm. Uh, and he, he then finds something in the silence, and and this joy then comes back. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and it's um, characterized by a song. Mm-hmm. In in this, so the strain of music part oh, is yeah. in this song. It's in the instru- in the instrumentation. I remember now in December how. Like a split second dream. I heard a summer song. If I get it wrong, you can find it in the East. Mm-hmm. It's going. And then the music comes in. And and the music is kind of the, the personification or the whatever you want to call it, the caricaturation, caricaturization of joy there. That is kind of the, also the, the summer song is the hinting at the sub theme, if you want to call it that on the album. We almost... Name the album Blue Flower, colon, 
when summer meets winter. Mm. Because in Lewis's mind, he he talks about in his book how his the two hemispheres of his mind were seemingly at odds with each other. Because Lewis is famous and I think really appealing because he is at once incredibly sharp, rational, logical. You do not want to get into a debate <laughs> with C.S. Lewis on on something, you know, be, because he might treat you the way his mentor treated him, the great knock, which is his his tutor and really hilarious first interaction with him just completely dresses down Lewis and, and his way of, of talking and pointing out all of it, the assumptions that were made, non-provable things that Lewis would, would talk Stop. about the scenery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you not see? You had no right to say any of this. And, and, uh, and so Lewis has been drilled into this. You can't have this and this be true. One ha- has to be true. Let's, let's have, I mean, he's famous in his argument for, for Jesus, you know, being either who he said he was or not trustworthy or out of his mind. And you, you can't have, you, you can't have, um, one option that says he's just a a nice guy that, you know, we should, we should model our lives after. And so this razor sharp intellect meets the other side of his, his mind, which is this hopeless romantic and, um, sucker for, for, for beauty and, um, joy, you know, which he's, which he's trying to track down. And he, he talks about in, in Surprised by Joy, how those two hemispheres of his mind were, were seemingly in conflict in him talking about all that I believed to be real, I, I thought cold and meaningless and all that I thought to be beautiful was imaginary and fairy ish And, and so there's this, what I, is a kind of a summer winter duality there. Either the world is, is a result of a, a cold, vast, meaningless kind of Saturnine, you know, I think, uh, paradigm or, it's not, and there is a garden where the blue flower grows, and there is a source where, of joy, and and kind of taken from that, where, where Tumnus talks about, he kind of comically mistakes where Lucy comes from, um, the spare um in the bright city of wardrobe where eternal summer reigns, and I just think that that's a little microcosm of of what Lewis's picture of paradise is, is is this place where summer wins in the end and that there are these eternal orchards where um you know we're meant to go and 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 be with the creator uh that made them and and to be ultimately with christ and so there's these two competing mindsets in his life and and that plays itself out in the album it reminds me you talk about the sharpness of the longing and then this kind of fairy tale romanticism and that's embodied isn't it by reaper Right, mm-hmm. who's this yes. warrior who Lucy dare not ever hug, right? And <laughs> whose blade is sharp, and you'll find the flat or the point of it. Uh-huh. Yet he's guided by this fairy tale that was sung over him, and then he's the one who goes to the utter east. And so these, That's right. there's so many echoes of so many of the books throughout. Yeah, mm. and you have a song called "Tread the Dawn." I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, and in the first, that was the most kind of blatant. <laughs> 
here you go, you know, title that there was. Well, you have a lovely expression of Reap Deep in there. I sailed away from Silver Shores with heaven loud in my heart. Been having doubts, I missed the mark. I sailed away from Silver Shores with heaven loud. In my heart. That's definitely a reach. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and, and you mentioned about uh, summer and winter, and you've got a couple of songs that talk about mm-hmm. summer, like Endless Summer and Summer Sun. And those are probably my favorite because I realized mm. afterwards when I read the lyrics, it's like, oh, this is my favorite because this is my favorite Lewis the Argument gives about the argument from Desire yeah. mm-hmm. when he asks have you ever wanted so bad to believe in something more and then one day all that's holding you back just doesn't hold a candle anymore like the moment mm-hmm. when he's on the bus and he, he feels like he can let go he can mm-hmm. let his let loosen his armor let his guard down certainly Endless Summer is the the most explicit, explicit version of, of that argument from desire on the album Mm. you know lewis's whole his main maybe the story of his life it seems to me has to be in that quote of you know if i find myself a desire for which nothing on this earth can satisfy the most probable explanation is that i was made for another world or you know what i mean something something like that and that that theme that argument from desire weaves itself into i think one one thing that i was reading you know, was trying to one author was trying to make the case that nobody did that as as well or as prolifically as Lewis did mm. throughout all of his writings. You know, his essays, his prose, his his fiction. That argument from desire, that the the blue flower, the joy, weaves itself into all of these different writings and, and venues where where Lewis is is communicating an idea, um, maybe more than any other you know, that, that he has. See, I read Surprised by Joy. That was the first Lewis book I read as an adult and I stalled on it. And it wasn't mm. until I'd read Mere Christianity where he outlines that argument from desire in, in the chapter on hope and then came back to Surprised by Joy. And then the book opened itself mm. up to me until I really grasped yes. that. I just found it lots of very difficult literary references. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are certainly those, but that was the one that actually really plunged me uh, all the way into Lewis. That was the one where I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, After you read Surprised by Joy? Yeah. I had read the okay, Narnias yeah. as a kid. Then I became a Christian, read them as a teen. And then in my 20s, I was really you know, uh, challenged by the shallowness of the faith that I was seeing around me. And it's probably just the faith that was within me that was so shallow. Um, But Phil lent me letters to an American lady, and I found this really lively mind. And remember, sometime right after that, reading Surprised by Joy and realizing that he had thought through atheism better than I'd ever thought through Christianity and thought, okay, I got to get to the bottom of him. And that was in my 20s. That was 30 years ago, and I'm still trying. But it was Surprised by Joy that plunged me in. And I read everything I could get my hands on. And so I love how many of the echoes um, of that and, and every, everything else uh, we find in here. Well, there is one incident described in Surprised by Joy that has its own song. And when I was listening to It's Possible, I roared with laughter when I realized what you were referring to. Uh, would you mind telling listeners, what's the song about? So It's Possible was a an attempt at, originally 
Okay, well, let me back up and say that in the book, he talks about his first visit to Oxford, where he's going to take some entrance entrance examinations, I think, to become a student at Oxford. And he sort of had this romanticized uh, idea in his mind of what Oxford is and would look like and talks about the first time that he physically goes there. He gets off the train and he he walks down the, the street and he, he even makes uh, a reference to his knowing that the train yards or the cities usually show their their uglier side to the uh, to the train yard. And but he he walks through Oxford and is is a little bit taken aback. You know this this isn't the the place of dreaming sp- spires and in and last you know uh, enchantments and and all of those kinds of ideas that he had. And he almost he he gets starts going into the the suburbs and he's like I, I've missed it. And he turns around though and sees the postcard image that he had seen in, in books and, and different things and and he talks about how he had come out on the wrong side of the city and remarks that you know little did i know at the time how much this this little episode was an allegory of my entire life and in some ways this episode i think is mirrored in the pilgrim's regress you know, he comes from the mountains where the landlord lives. The landlord is God. And, you know, he he, he flees uh, Puritania, uh, where the mountains are, where this landlord with all of his rules are, you know, kind of representing the, the God of his childhood. And and he he goes on search of this island or, you know, the blue flower. You can, you, those are probably interchangeable icons. The, the, the island is the source of, of longing and joy. And he... And he goes all this way to find it spoiler alert if you're listening to the podcast and and um it's only when he he reaches the island or as close as he can get to it that he realizes he he can't get to it from this side he he had gone as far as the east is from the west and realized that the mountains and the island are the same thing and he turns around and he has to go back to puritania in the mountains and, and where all the joy comes from that he, he just didn't realize before for a host of reasons. I mean, this is the, the, the ultimate spark note summary, you know, <laughs> of, the, of the book. And on the way back, he comments how he sees everything so differently. The return journey is, is much more beautiful than, than the going out. And so the, that was the, the lyrical foundation, but musically I had tried this idea many in many different ways. And with a week to go left writing before we started the, the the project recording it, I didn't have this song. And um, I, I was, think I was trying to make it too classical and kind of Oxford-esque. And it definitely turned into not that. And, <laughs> it has and, such a fun opening. Uh, I, and, I, and I hear it's your child's favorite song too. I, uh, yes, yes, I, uh, Simon. <laughs> yeah. I'd heard about the fame, but I didn't get the facts. First step, got up, 
Started walking to the beat of a one-way ticket on a two-way street. Hey. He, he loves singing it. It was just this weird kind of quirky, you know, pop song, basically, that really the Oxford scene was became the springboard more so for this song. And, and then after that, we were kind of entered into a, a pop playground and, and sort of went crazy. Uh, I love it. I couldn't help but seeing the Greytown, too. Because uh, Lewis in Great Divorce says that hell and heaven both work retrospectively. And so the mm -hmm. gray town for those who end up in heaven would have always been heaven, would have been a, a mm -hmm. stop on the path to heaven. And so it's possible to see the city from the wrong side, mm -hmm. right? And those who end up in hell didn't see the gray town for what it was supposed to be, um, a, a stopping place on the way. So, I, I think the line from Lewis that I've quoted most this season has been from the magician's nephew, where talks about Uncle Andrew. And Lewis says that um, what you see in here often depends very much on where you're standing and what sort of person you are. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. I would like to talk about two more songs and then we will wrap <laughs> things up. We should have made this a three-parter, David. I uh, know. We should have. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I want to talk about Paradise because oh, but you okay. know what, this David, is one of those moments. Okay. We should have a listening party for our slackers. And like uh, once the album comes out, we should have a listening party. Excellent so, idea. I will yeah, put it on the awesome. calendar. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Paradise. I'd like to talk about Paradise because this is one of those moments where I make the mistake of noticing something that alludes to till we have faces and then tell Andrew about it. And then I don't, he doesn't shut up about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Neither does Lewis. <laughs> but yeah, there, there were so many illusions in this song. Andrew, you found a, a load. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there's just uh, tons of them. Um, the kind of dreaming, uh, ransom dreaming of Paralandra. Mm -hmm. um, Rillian maybe dreaming of freedom, dreaming of the overworld, Shasta dreaming of Narnia and the North. This kind of aspirational uh, moving this longing for another place. So the longing is not mm -hmm. just, um, the longing is often geographical, right? He's longing for the mountains. Even the name of your band, the Grey Havens, is a longing for this place where the, the fellowship has its last uh, last getting together. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I heard a bunch of, uh, a bunch of that. I, in fact, I missed the Two We Have Faces reference, but I knew that <laughs> David would pick it up because um, David is secretly convinced that uh, Lewis and I are, uh, are right about it being his best book. Um, so how many of those were, were in your, in your head? Uh, as you're So I, I think that the, I, I have read the science fiction trilogy. Um, the Paralander I think was my favorite of the, of the three of those for sure. I think it's almost like this, the, the imagery that he uses in the first half of that book for describing Paralander is just, so fascinating and, and and colorful and it just kind of sets your mind like your your imagination on fire you're like what is what is happening but i'm also so touched by ransom longing for paralandra after he leaves it right mm. he misses mm -hmm. it when he comes home at the end of the book and then talks about yes. it in um in that hideous strength but sorry keep going yeah i had most shasta in mind for this i was trying to create a sonic Arabian Nights is the wrong word, but a but a um I mentioned that I, you know, read Planet Narnia and the the Chronicles of Narnia a good amount before landing on Surprised by Joy. So I, I did have a lot of Narnian imagery in my head and was trying to this was an earlier sketch before I knew I was gonna write 
a, a, a Surprise by Joy album, where I had I was trying to communicate Mercury, uh, which is the the planet, if Michael Ward's right, that influenced the horse and his boy. He is, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're both believers. Here. And <laughs> but part of the, the mercurial spirit, one of the attributes associated with Mercury is, um, if you've ever you know if you hold Mercury, the element in a in a petri dish or whatever, even on your hand it separates and comes back together again so f- fluidly and it's it's actually pretty entrancing to watch and that that separating again twinning and then coming back together you know twins is a huge theme on the album pairs is a huge theme uh certainly on the album in the book and that was my attempt um at trying to to do that musically with those opening piano part. So I, you have a really fast sort of 16th or 32nd note piano repeating pattern at the beginning of the song. That to me was just kind of this, I was trying to get like a, a steady uh, beat of, of just horse's hooves, just like kind of like going. And then you have another piano part over on top of that, that uh, plays this main melody that the the vocal then joins in and kind of parallels and, and splits apart and comes together again. So there, there musically I was trying to trying to do that, but woven into to the lyrics is the heart of it is kind of that that ache of the blue flower, you know, in the back of my mind is for Narnia and the North, you know, it being kind of a geographical place where where you're you're trying to travel to. So travel is kind of the the spirit of the song and trying to get there. go ahead and make this jump because it's core right who is longing for narnia shasta's name is core right his brother mm-hmm. is core and thunderfist but he is core and um, one of the things that i've been working on especially with my work on till we have faces is how longing as lewis says at the end of surprise by joy served only as a signpost of something other That's and right. outer and so my big contention is that the that Lewis's main theme in all of his work is not joy, but joy as a pointer towards love. That's right. And courage to your heart and the cordial. And so it's Shasta who is longing for home, longing for family. And then I love what you brought up about the pairs and the twinnings so that Shasta, Kor, and Erebus marry so that they can go on more conveniently fighting 
uh, with yeah, each that's other. Right. <laughs> you know, this kind of matched set that's going on. And uh-huh. so I hadn't really given a lot of thought um, about core as representing the Latin word core, meaning heart. Mm. Um, mm. And there's horse and his boy right in the heart of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and right in the heart of the Narnia Chronicles. And right yeah. as he's getting to know Joy Davidman, right, he's, he dedicates it to her sons. So mm. this whole book is all the more about. And then I just had to yeah. listen back to the to the album that you provided, and and yeah, I can hear the hoofbeats, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's entirely yeah. successful. It's interesting, just as a as a random aside, that the horse and his boy, for a lot of people that I've met, um, is is the favorite. Yep, that's true for me. Book, it's my favorite, and it's my wife's favorite as well and it's so interesting because it doesn't it doesn't have it's the only book uh well maybe magician's nephew but it but it's one of the only two books that doesn't have characters in it that uh are are continuation characters mm-hmm. in in the rest of the books it's let's see but there's some kind of magic that's captured in the book in this these two pairs of characters um that that does something and even transcends the the four Pevensey kids being together. And um, I, I wouldn't say it's my f- personal favorite, but I have said it has been in the past. I mean, it's it's definitely a contender. Uh, Paul F. Ford, who wrote The Delightful Companion to Narnia, for which I give listeners a money-back guarantee. It's one of the top five books. Uh, Michael huh. Lords is up there, Diana Glyers as well, but Paul Ford's uh, magisterial but he points to Erebus as the kind of pivot character in the development of Lewis's uh, commitment to uh, making believable strong women so there are Mm. no real women in Out of the Silent Planet and by Tilia Faces an ugly woman's writing the whole book but Erebus is really where the corner turns Shasta seems a little ridiculous Erebus seems a little (laughs) wise Um, and and I think That's that right. it's not accidental that Joy Davidman's on the scene, and she actually writes a so- a poem about a curved sword named Joy, which was an actual sword that Douglas had and hid in the house. Um, and <laughs> wow. so there's all of this kind of Middle Eastern imagery and stuff going on. And so I think uh, Horse and His Boy, in a lot of ways, is hugely pivotal in Lewis's life. That is fascinating. <laughs> I did not know that. And though, uh, yeah, if you rewind and, and you and you start with Lucy, you know, I wouldn't say she's a uh, a soft character. Oh, no. I mean, in, no, no, no. In in a, in a certain sense, you know, he already has a a woman or a girl as the um, maybe even paralleling the Gospels here. The the one that yeah. believes the most. Yes. And Lucy loves and the is most. the most faithful. And she sees because yeah. she loves. Yeah, I think that That's she's right. without question his favorite character. And yeah. she's the only character that Lewis, the narrator, ever speaks to. Um, he speaks mm. to her at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But in terms of the growth of... So yeah, you're absolutely right. He's being very deliberate about empowering Lucy. Because the youngest was originally Peter. You know, um, Rose, Martin, Anne, and Peter, and Peter session. was the youngest mm-hmm. in 1939. But in 1948, it's but he was the only one to survive. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there's oh, a really? Saint what? Lucy of Narnia, 
uh, as well. So yeah, you're absolutely right. He's really invested in Lucy, but I think Ford's wise to see that in the arc, the trajectory, Erebus really serves as a turning point. Um, Lucy certainly points out the way that he's going, but in some ways, Erebus mm. lies in the center. Uh, and even Jill is kind of held up as the, oh, yeah. you know, there's this comical part in the last battle where they're, 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 um, you know, going, sneaking around through the woods as kind of um, exiled, you know, uh, Trillian, the king, and uh, the, the characters that are on the run and sneaking around the woods is is commenting on how to Eustace on who is this, you know, wood maid that you have brought into <laughs> yeah. to Narnia, you know, because he's impressed by her archery skills and, yeah. and her um, kind of reconnaissance. Yeah abilities and sneaking around the woods and all that and she's and, very and practical she's kind of held up as the, yeah and she's held up as the more kind of competent mm -hmm. i think yep of the two she's the one that goes into the stable and frees puzzle mm -hmm. she's kind of a That's fulfillment right. of what susan could be i think um yeah mm -hmm. so the women keep getting stronger and stronger but i think yeah horse is mm -hmm. a, a turning point now time is marching on i said i just wanted to talk about one more song briefly and we've been speaking a lot about the horse and his boy uh but the song that i want to talk about is pale moonlight which mm. strongly alludes to the previous book the silver chair mm. it's got this lyric in it but maybe i've been sold a lie i can't find a light tell me how many go down and never return to the sunlit lands heaven please have i lost them for good but maybe i am so We, we just put it out as a single at the time of this recording. And on the face of it, it feels more like a, a questioning and a doubting of God and faith and Christianity, but, but it's actually the exact opposite. So the imagery I'm borrowing is, is obviously from the silver chair and they, you know, they go down into the, the green queen's layer where you have Earthmen there that warn the you know travelers Puddleglum and and Eustace and Jill that uh, you know many go down and, and few return to the Sunlit Lands and it's like this mantra that they say over and over again and it and it kind of gets drilled into your mind and so Lewis deconstruction is a is a pretty big topic right now you have a lot of stories of, of people kind of going through a de deconstruction phase in their in their faith. So, you know, children being told and taught things um, to believe when they grow up is unavoidable, whether it's Christian or, or not. And then a lot of people are coming of age now and, and questioning uh, what they were taught as kids. And, and that's kind of like a deconstruction thing. And at the end of which a lot of people, you know, go back to, to what they were taught. Uh, when they were a kid because they've they've sorted it out for themselves now and they've and they've kind of um, taken it on as on as their own and adopted it as as something that they they believe to be true and lewis kind of goes through that deconstruction phase for years in his life story 
I mean, he, he quickly abandons his childhood faith uh, around the age of 13 years old. And then it's not until he's 30-ish, uh, plus or minus. I don't know the exact. Oh, don't get <laughs> Andrew started on that. Please <laughs> yeah. don't. So, so sometime date, 30-ish, he's, he, he, he's at Oxford and he, he comes to believe in God, you know, has a, has a conversation with Tolkien shortly after, you know, he, he believes that, that Jesus is, is historically the son of God. And it's actually really admirable in my opinion. Um, I promise this is relating to the song, but it's, it's really admirable in my opinion, how Lewis comes to, to faith because it isn't accompanied with the spiritual and emotional high no. at all. It is a company. It, it's a, it's a product of his, deconstruction. I mean, he he goes around to all of these different ideologies throughout a couple decades and holds them up to scrutiny. And the the razor the razor sharp kind of logical uh puts every single ideology through its paces and attempts to see through it in his words. You know, to 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 see what's really is this just some kind of semantical you know, um, non-true, I don't know, idea. It's interesting in his, in one of the biographies I read, he, the, the author talks about how Lewis loved in the theater to sit in the seat that was in the balconies, the closest to the edge of the stage that he could get so that his view could see both the stage and behind the curtain. <laughs> so he, he loved to see the actors on the stage, but also what, what went on behind the curtain when they got off and, you know, uh, had to do set changes and, and things like that. He was, he was fa- fascinated by that. And I think he spent his whole life trying to, to see through things. And at the end, he comes to a place where, where he talks about it in the book is like a, a game of, of chess and God is continually putting him in a place of, of check. And, uh, well, why don't I try pantheism over here? Check. Uh, well, why don't I, why don't I try this idea? Check. And, and he finally gets cornered and it's, and it's mate because the only logical conclusion that Lewis can come to is that Jesus was actually who he said he was and that, and that God is, is the most logical conclusion. And he, he talks about how he was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the, into the kingdom of heaven, like the most unlikely convert ever. And to me, that was really admirable because it didn't seem like emotionally he had, he was thinking he had a lot to gain. It was, I'm just, I'm submitting to reality as I see it. And so this was though, after a long time spent deconstructing things to find out what's there. And this song is that, I mean, the pale moonlight is talking about how now he was willing to consider every option available except God, you know, because he, he abandons it at an early age. The lyric is, you know, in, in the first verse, it, it talks about how he, he leaves a God behind and much like Pilgrim's Regress, he leaves it at an early age and kind of, it's in the background all the time, but it's, it's not really up for reconsideration a whole lot, or he's trying to, he he's trying to see if there can be any kind of treaty with reality that he calls it that excludes God. You know, because he doesn't want that to be true, and um, but then eventually comes to the realization that that is the most logical, and and that that is the most that that fits the puzzle better than any other option. And the maybe I've been sold a lie is is a reference to 
um, all of the other ideologies and sources, what counterfeit sources of where the blue flower grows, you know, that just fall short and, and don't pass scrutiny. I was so struck by how contemporary this lyric feels. Um, I thought that you could be preaching to the political system. Um, mm. Yeah, maybe I've been sold a lie. I can't find a light. Tell how many go down and never return to the sunlit lands. Um, and this this idea of a of a of a deception. I love too that the gnomes who say many go down to the sunlit lands and never return. For them, that's a chant of hope. <laughs> They can't wait to leave the sunlit lands. How can you stand to be yeah. so close to the sun? Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, and they'd like to go further down into yeah. Byzantine. Yeah. Or For them, that's their gospel hymn of you know bringing in the sheaves. They'll, they'll go rejoicing home. Um, yeah. uh, so it's a perspective. But but that there's a God that I left behind secondhand everywhere I find the fire's gone. You know, it's like reading Twitter all day and not reading mm. the gospel and how mm -hmm. fake news of all sorts and the polemic, I won't stoop to call it rhetoric because there's nothing rhetorical about what you hear screamed at everybody. You know, it's just polemical. Um, but we've lost the kind of ancient way. And that as I'm listening to that song, not only did I hear those echoes that you mentioned and, uh, and I missed, missed most of what, you, uh, what was behind the song, but it also felt mm -hmm. like the quest for something true and real and good and reliable. And mm -hmm. the thing about deconstruction, you know, and I was a, I, I did graduate work in English literature. Deconstruction deconstructs itself, right? It doesn't right. stand. You pull the string. It doesn't. You know, and Lewis does that brilliantly in, in Mere Christianity, and the whole sweater unravels. Um, and at the end of deconstruction deconstructing, what is there but that truth that, uh, that that's lying at the heart of things? So, and I feel like this album really, really nibbles around the edges and 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 feeds at the heart of those truths too. Thank you. I'm, I've read ahead on your notes. I know you said that was the last song. I see your guesses on the on the Google Docs here for, <laughs> for the last couple of songs. Uh, Tread the dawn, obviously a a, a a reference to you know the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But the Have You Heard It track 10 with with the end of the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, um, you know, they're all at the Care Paravel mm -hmm. and they're, the seagulls are, are crying out. And, and so, um, have you heard it? Can you remember? You know, that was, that. I think your guess was right. Well, and the movie, the theme in the movie at that point where she's looking mm -hmm. with Tumnus and then the footprints disappear mm -hmm. and even the, the, the musical theme at that point reminded me some mm -hmm. of the music um, am i just mm -hmm. hearing things into that or so here's what happened i listened to Gregson williams when i was right? at this uh was he the, I think the composer yeah, Harry Gregson, that? Yeah. Gregson williams. so i looked that up at the beginning of the process and started listening to the score of the line the wish of the wardrobe and i just i got 30 seconds in and i had to turn sure. it off because it was so good <laughs> and i thought i'm just gonna get so discouraged here <laughs> if i listen to this score and just do something completely second rate to this. So I, I tried to stay away actually uh -huh. from the from the music to try to not be not, not be too discouraged. Because when you hear something like that, it's uh, so far and away from what you're gonna sit down and try to do. So well, no, and I was just hearing just you know maybe echoes. Um, I didn't think it was at all derivative derivative what you did. And I don't know. I mean, I watched the movie eight times in the theater when it came out. 
You did? Oh my gosh, wow. no. I think that there may be few who are so obsessive <laughs> with that as me. And so didn't even bother trying <laughs> to take great. a child with him as cover. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, no, no. Just shame. I was there the very first showing, tickets. you know. Um That's awesome. So but that feeling of and I think that that's one of the scenes that the music helps capture Lucy's kind of poignant longing, having and wanting, you know, as Aston's footprints disappear. And it's, yeah, as you mentioned, it's, it's in the book, but I felt like that kind of heartful longing and hope and, and dismay at the same point was, I think, pretty, pretty eloquently captured in the movie. Mm. And then the music there in your album reminded me of that feeling. Well, I am going to call time on this. I think we're definitely going to do Andrew's idea of having a listening party because there are many more uh, allusions and references that I want to talk about with people. So we will definitely do that for our Patreon supporters. Uh, And as we wrap up today, I'm just going to make the pitch that I think your next album should be another C.S. Lewis-centric book. Uh, I think (laughs) you could do A Grief Observed and we can all weep. I was scared to to read that one. I I opened it up. I was in the middle of writing and it was past the the subject matter of of the the album chronologically. And I, I didn't, I just had a a feeling that if I read this, it could derail some directions mm-hmm. that I was going on and I needed some rules and, and some rail, you know, safeguards just kind of, but that is a book that I've heard quoted many times. And it's one of the few that I, I haven't read. Well, yet. and perhaps the Lord is saving that for when you have to go through, you know, deep yeah. grief. I remember, I think yeah. Linford did a, uh, from over the Rhine did a piano album after the death of his father that really oh, kind wow. of reflected some of that feeling. And in some ways, that book probably won't make sense until uh, an intimate loss yeah. comes upon you. But then it may uh, be a way to structure. It was Lewis's own way of kind of screaming at God. And it helped him mm-hmm. to structure his grief, even though he couldn't understand it, by putting it into words in a journal. So, so if ever yeah. you have a, a tune in your head that keeps reducing everybody to tears, probably be in D minor, the saddest <laughs> of all keys. The uh, saddest yeah. of all keys. <laughs> but if you, uh, if you have that tune, then yes, I think the Lord is prompting you to do uh, an album on the a Grief Observed. Or I would yeah. also suggest The Four Loves because that's the book we're going to sure. be doing next season. I've thought season. of that. Sure. Like the, I've thought of Really? That. Like The Four Seasons? Yeah. I've, I've actually got it on. It's one of the few recordings that exist mm-hmm. of him. So I've got that. And it's actually audiobook. not the book. There was a speech he gave in 50. Oh, it's a lecture yeah, series. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's kind of a, a, a talk. Um, reach out to me privately. I've got the transcription uh, if you ever oh, need. Wow. And I can send that. Yeah. And then he revises that um, and keeps huh. much of it, but changes a fair bit to be the four loves in nineteen. It's so great hearing him talk. <laughs> oh, you're yes. just like kind of, it's not what you think. <laughs> When you're when you're reading him, but it's great. Today, I'd like to talk to you on the subject of pra. <laughs> yes. uh, exactly, it's so proper. In Greek, they have four words for love: storge, S T O R G E. Yeah, <laughs> but his actual there, there's a BBC um, interview that I is available on YouTube. It's one of the few yeah. that that exists. Yeah, personality. Where he's talking about um, Jesus and and uh, identity and and something like that, and. And he goes off script a couple of times and, and he says to the, to the person that ain't being interviewed or, you know, and I know that's hard and any kind of, any kind of doesn't aside thing. And, and it was one of the few moments where I, I really felt like I was hearing Lewis as, as, as he would talk to maybe a friend or, or not when he's in such a formal setting. And that gave me a little bit more like, oh, I could be friends with, with, you know, 
um, with Jack, you know, k- kick it up with, yeah, that, that felt more like a Jack. Actually, than... those were actually all scripted. Um, so that was one of the really? mere Christianity chapters. Um, and he had to not yeah. only script them, um, to a specific time link, but he had to vet them with the BBC because they were wartime broadcasts. I know that That's sounds right. difficult, but he was trying to really be colloquial. He chats mm-hmm. a little bit about well, that. Well, there was just a, a few moments in there where it was like, it, it was almost, it felt like an aside right. to the main, like kind of reading the, the teleprompter uh, or the script or whatever, that I just felt like, oh, it's yeah, that's the more human. We've also, in the rabbit room, they have the recordings. Um, they've just discovered these recordings that Doug Gresham made of Lewis reading parts of, yeah, what's that? It was his dad, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his stepfather yeah. reading Paralandra, that hideous strength, and um, wow. quoting the first bit of Canterbury, uh, the Canterbury Tales. Um, After I three bucks, three dollar yeah. download on the Rabbit Room That's store. Amazing. So, yeah, I'll put links awesome. to all of that in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, as we ramp up, I'd like to see an album on the Grief Observed, the Four Loves, <laughs> and you could decide to take your life into your hands and decide which you think is Lewis's best book and do it on uh, the Great Divorce or capitulate to andrew's whining and go until we have faces capitulate to you know I, what lewis said far and away my best book what were you saying David? i will i will have to have a separate conversations with you guys on as to why you think uh till we have faces was his best book i've i i maybe can get to the point where i can say it, it was the best written no it was book. it was the, like from yeah. a technical standpoint yeah. but i can't get yet to the place where i'm like this book captured me the most it's yeah he he was hiding a secret even more deeply than he was hiding the seven planets and do you think he so hit it. oh yeah no i know so um we gotta talk oh yeah yeah <laughs> i'll send you some links too the first okay. two words of book one are i am the last two words of book one are no answer her whole complaint is to come to the conclusion that I am no answer. And then at the end, she says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. And she's talking to love. The whole book is about love being the answer to everything. So anyway, yeah, this is going to be a whole propaganda. season. <laughs> <laughs> David Radford, thank you so much for coming on Pints with Jack. Yeah, I, they basically, well, first, let me say, I I have a feeling that this will will be my favorite interview on the on the you know whatever whatever podcast that i'm on it just was a, a real pleasure for for me to be here and, and i appreciate you guys um take that other podcasts and yeah <laughs> <laughs> and no i i just am, i'm really appreciative of a of the uh yeah of the spirit but the people can find us on um spotify the gray havens it's with an a g-r-a-y our new album is called blue flower and you can you know the grayhavensmusic.com is where we live and Instagram and all the places. Um, and your podcast. You, you can find us. Yes, we have a podcast actually where I, I go into each, um, into detail, each of our songs and, and kind of break it down to a more in-depth version of, of what you've heard today per song. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, thanks to yeah. you all for listening and to our Patreon supporters, including our top tier supporters. That's Dawn, Sterling, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. Yes. 
Well, and you can always find out more about the podcast at pintswithjack.com. And it's there that you can send us messages, listen to past episodes, and pick up some lovely merchandise. Uh, And, of course, this won't be the last time we'll be talking about music and C.S. Lewis. So please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.